And a very warm welcome to another big kickoff at a rugby podcast where we digest over some talking rugby points. Uh, uh, we've been off for, for a couple of weeks, uh, still a huge amount to talk about that's happened in the last couple of weeks. And uh, join me t- today is a uh, regular contributor, Debbie Knight. Good uh, evening to you, Debbie. Good evening. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. Also regular contributor from Talking Rugby Union, Joe Harvey. Hi, Joe. Hi, Peter. How are things? Very well, thank you all. And uh, Tony uh, DeBrose, who's the Director of Sport at Camford School. Hi, Tony. Evening, evening all. And making his debut, uh, former Quinns media man who did a fantastic job there at Harlequins. Uh, unfortunately, he was made redundant uh, recently due to obviously various circumstances, which is a bit of a shame because they did a fantastic job there. But he's now formed a brand new company as well called NRPR. Welcome along to Nick Rucastle. Hi, Nick. Thank you, Peter. Nice to be on. Yeah. So, rugby is what we're going to talk. Let's get on with uh, some uh, interesting facts over the last couple of weeks. I'm going to start off with uh, the Gallagher Premiership final because on the last uh, big kickoff rugby podcast, we were sort of previewing it, but uh, I did say we'd have a chat about it as well. And it was quite a final, actually. Uh, Joe was lucky enough to uh, attend it as well. It's going to make us all very, very uh, evil and not very happy, I know. But hey, uh, who cares? Um, Joe, quite an occasion, quite a game as well. What was your thoughts on it? Yeah, it was, you know, after so many months of kind of just waiting for it all to, to happen, it, it eventually did. And it was not what we're accustomed really, isn't it, for a Premiership final. We used to have been quite nice weather. We used to have been quite dry. You know, there's a lot of kind of fluid play. It was just quite the opposite of that, wasn't it, really? Um it was, a, it was a tight game. Wasps were maybe in it a bit more than people realised or expected going into that game because they're running with all the COVID stuff. Mm. And at the end of the day, you can't really say anything other than Exeter would deserve a champions that day. They were clinical with everything they did. Wasps, you know, they made that mistake with the line-out with a few minutes on the clock and Exeter made them pay for it. And it was all kind of down to Henry Slade's pretty clinical kicking and getting him in the right spots to score the points. And yeah, mm. Exeter, the story kind of just goes on, doesn't it? Well, yeah, you're right, Joe. It does go on. And, and you know, we, we, we've said on these podcasts quite a few times, you, you've got to praise Exeter for their grit, their determination, their fighting spirit, etc. You know, when the chips are down, they are one of those sides where you just never write them off, do you? Oh, God, no. I, I think they're, they're one of those where their depth is their strength. And literally, you can look at the bench, you can look at anyone on there. I mean, Gareth Steenson, I don't think he even got a trot out the last two weekends, but he was in that number 22 shirt. And the thing is, if he came on, you wouldn't have even probably noticed him and Joe Simmons having interchanged. And that's that's exactly what it was. And that's their strength. And that's why they are the, the best team in English club rugby at the moment. Mm. Delighted to say I've been joined by uh, Jonathan Harris-Bass, who's commentator, rugby commentator. You've probably uh, heard him uh, on various uh, rugby commentaries. So hi, hi, Jonathan. Hi there. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself? Very good, thank you. Welcome to the party. Uh, got Joe Harvey from Talking Rugby Union, Tony Diprose, uh, Debbie Knight and Nick Rucastle. Uh, you haven't missed much, uh, Jonathan. We were just talking about, obviously, the Gallagher Premiership final as well. What was your thoughts on that? It was, well, I've, I've missed what's already been said. Um, 
I, I completely concur with uh, the comments about Exeter and, and the clinical nature of the way they've been playing. Mm. I thought it was a fair result on the day and, and a fair result to the season, um, ultimately. Um, not really a lot to add. It, the Twickenham seemed very odd, empty. Um, I think we'll probably come on to more comments about empty stadia. When we talk about the Six Nations as well, it's, it, it has a very odd feeling to, to the end of a season. And I... And I feel sorry for Exeter in many ways because what they've achieved this season will perhaps be forgotten in the context of what's happened globally. Um, and, and that is undeserving for them as a club. They have built the most extraordinary um, squad over 10 years. Their, their, their mantra is incredible. They're just the most delightful club to work with. And, and in my experience, whilst I, I do believe that rugby is is just head and shoulders above all other sports when it comes to the end of games and players coming down the tunnel and going out and spending time with fans, especially the young fans. At Exeter, I've just, every time I've been down there over the last seven or eight years, they just, there's a long line of them. There's, there's not one player who doesn't come back out of the changing room. They all are still there at least an hour after the final whistle and they're signing autographs. They're having selfies taken. They, they just put the time in. and. And they are fully deserving of what they've achieved. And although I, I felt it was, it was a slightly underwhelming final, I think we've probably been spoiled in premiership finals over the last few years. Um, it, it was the right result. And, and, and I think it's just, it gives us a chance to now move on and, and, and hope that at some point during this next season, crowds will start to filter back in and, and the game will become more of what we, we want it to be. Mm, definitely. You mentioned about the Six Nations. Uh, it goes about saying that's what we're going to come on to next, uh, guys. Um, England did what they had to do, uh, to be fair. Yes. Um, Debbie, what was your thoughts on uh, England's performance overall? Um, my thoughts are that the, the best team in the tournament came second. Um, and actually, I've done a little bit of looking into things. France didn't win because of their results, obviously, against Scotland, but also against Italy. Um, I, I thought that Italy competed really well on Saturday. Uh, I mean, Stain, who is one of their project players, and Paledri, I thought, were fantastic on that pitch. And I think they deserved more than they got from that game. Um, Thank goodness for Ben Youngs, really. <laughs> I, and, I, and I would have been one that was perhaps saying that he shouldn't still be starting. But, you know, his two tries were made a difference. Um, I think England perhaps won in spite of some of their performances, well, which is perhaps a bit harsh for an England fan. But I, I was there. I was at the stad when France beat them. And wow, they beat them well. Um, and it's fantastic to see a strong French team. I, th I think they're building for the World Cup and doing very nicely. Thank you. Yeah, I'm going to come on and talk about France very shortly, actually. Uh, I, I echo those words in, most definitely. Uh, Tony, is it me or is it perhaps not me that when it comes to England, England, I feel, are a second half side as opposed to a first half side? Uh, hard to hard, I'd hard to put a label on that. I mean, I think overall Saturday was not quite as super as was maybe billed in the in the media. It started off very drab for anyone who had the pleasure to watch down at Parky Scarlets. <laughs> um, the middle was a, 
a sort of a filling of a sandwich of some sort and, and finished, I thought, with a really good game in the France Island game. Um, in answer to England, uh, they, they were methodical, they were clinical in what they did. Um, you know, I, I thought there were some players who stood up well. I think the back row, you know, it was nice to see Billy Vodipola put in a bit more of a performance. You know, he's, he's probably not quite got back to the levels he was at, but I thought the rest of the back row performed very well under Hill and Curry. You know, it's a tough place to get into, that back row at the moment. There's some very good players knocking on the door. Simmons not even in the squad. So, um, I thought they were clinical. I think they'll realise they've got lots of work to do, but, you know, I think if you look at it, can't be a bad base to work from when you've got Bristol winning the Challenge Cup, Exeter winning the Champions Cup and England winning the Six Nations. Um, you know, from a men's rugby point of view, they've, they've got a very good base there. Probably I was enjoyed more watching was the women win the Grand Slam on the Sunday. Um, I thought that was, a, that was an outstanding performance from a group who hadn't played for six, seven months. But uh, yeah, work, work to do. But I think Eddie will be pleased. Um, you know, he blooded some more youngsters. Um, it was nice to see a Ben Youngs come back into some sort of form. Um, but they'll know there's plenty more to do. And, you know, you said you're going to talk about France. They are a big threat on the horizon in Northern Hemisphere rugby. Anyone who's watched their under-20 sides over the last few years, I've been lucky enough to do that as part of my job, um, knows how many talented players they've got coming through. And they're not just the ones that are already playing. Yeah, very, very good point, actually. Um, overall... <laughs> Let's have a quick vote on this. Uh, Nick, I'll come to you first. England won that Six Nations, yes. Were they the best side, do you feel, overall? I think over the course of a very, very long tournament, they probably are the deserved winners, in my opinion. I think it's close, and you look at how close it was, really, between those sort of those top four positions. It was, um, it was narrow, and you even have to commend sides like like Scotland, and obviously we talked about France, we want to talk to, talk to them more. There are, there are some great sides, and Ireland, I think, were potentially unlucky, but England just have the, the strength and depth, and they've got some incredible players to, to, to do the job. Um, yes, they could have done with being a bit, um, a bit better warmed up. Uh, they're a bit rusty, but they got the job done. Yeah, no, I think, as you said, quite rightly, it's all about getting the job done, isn't it, Nick, realistically? And, and another good thing, it has to be said with England, time and time again, when the pressure has been on them, and they, to quote your words, got the job done, they always come up with the goods, don't they? They absolutely do, yeah. They, that's, that's the quality that they've got on the side. Any side led by Eddie is going to be methodical and going to get that job done. Um, he's, he's not the kind of guy who accepts half a performance and the effort has to be 110% or on your bike, you know? Very much so. So overall, yeah, congratulations to England. Um, I'll come on to France very, very shortly. What do we think about Ireland in, in reference to this Six Nations? Um, Jono, what's your thoughts on Ireland's overall performance? I was really disappointed with Ireland, um, but I'm not going to be on my own there. Um, but I just, I was really disappointed with Ireland. If you go back a year ago to the Rugby World Cup, um, I, I felt that they had peaked too early. And there's a, if I was to make a comparison, England in 2003 had peaked too early. They peaked in 2002, but they, they had the 
incredible belief and and just an extraordinary co coaching setup behind them but also just within the core of players that they they knew that they would find a way to keep on the top of that wave right the way through and and i think that is something ireland failed to do um and at the moment, Ireland have got some really hard choices ahead because they need, Andy Farrell needs to make a decision of A, how he's going to play rugby. I don't think he's going to change how he plays rugby. So as a consequence, Ireland are going to try and stick at being a very workman-like team and probably not the most exciting side to watch, but they will they will win it through good set piece. They will win it through opening teams up, but through grinding it out a little bit first up. Um, and then I think the, the big dif the difficulties come with just the, the playing staff. Does he stick with some of the, the, the playing staff who have been incredible servants to Ireland over the years? Or does he start to bring through the younger players? And there isn't long until, as in, in, in a World Cup cycle, you've got, what, around 30 games until the next World Cup. So they've got to make those decisions and they need to make them quickly because Ireland looked well off the pace. And let's be honest, they were flattered by the scoreline in Paris. They, they, they did not deserve to be that close at the end of the game. And... And France also, I don't think well, whether France ever get it together to play a full 80 minutes of rugby is um, one of the, the, the everlasting questions. They have the quality. If they play 80 minutes of rugby to beat anyone in the world at the moment, I think France will contrive to find a way to take this extraordinary bunch of players and mess it all up by the time they host the World Cup in, in three years' time because they have form on doing it. But I really hope they don't because I think this is the most exciting blend of French rugby players I have seen in a really long time. And I'm sorry that I've come off Ireland and moved on to France, but I'm champing at the bit to talk about the French just because I just think that they are sensational to watch. And I think they play, they play the brand of rugby that the majority of us want to see. Yeah. Right. Elizabeth Cartwright has joined us. Hopefully she can hear us now. Hello. Oh, hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Okay. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm so, so sorry. That's all right. Don't worry about it. It's all right. It's called technology, <laughs> but don't worry. We will we, we'll get there in the end. But welcome along. Thank, thank you. you so much for joining us. This is Elizabeth. Oh, no, thank you. Uh, who does some writing for Last Word on Sports, a massive rugby fan. We'll get you in the conversation as well, Elizabeth. Don't worry about it. Brilliant. I know you missed a few minutes. Thank you. We you sorry you... about that. No, not a problem. Don't apologise. No worries at all. Nice <laughs> to have you on balls. Um, Thank you. We are going to talk French rugby now, because I know John O's understandably uh, uh, waxing lyrical about France. Debbie, likewise. I'm going to put my two penneth worth in for what it's worth. I think they're all brilliant side to watch. They really are. They play exciting rugby. They've got three players, remember, lined up already as nominations for the uh, Player of the Six Nations Championship, which we will be talking about as well. So uh, I want you all to get your thinking caps on, because at the end of this conversation, I'm going to ask you, who would you vote for out of those six, OK? But that's to come. Um, Debbie, your chance now. French rugby, um, they, are the, they are the real deal, aren't they? Yeah, I think they are. Uh, Sean Edwards has made a, an amazing difference to them, I think. Um, I mean, someone actually in one of the posts that I saw this week said that was Wales' loss. He's England's loss. I, I actually can't believe that we have never employed that man. It's crazy. But looking at their results, they let Italy score 22 points against them in Paris. 
So I think that and the punch, which is the sort of thing that the French are always likely to do something stupid that then loses them a game. Um, discipline and obviously defence, if Italy can score 22 points against them. Sean's still got some work to do, I think. That's where they lost this Six Nations. But their attacking play is just amazing. And I don't need to think about who's going to be the player of the tournament at all. I've got it in my mind already. One of the very few world-class players that we see in Northern Hemisphere rugby. Um, seeing a, a strong French rugby team is just so exciting. It takes me right back to when I first watched international rugby when we had the Serge Blancos, et cetera, a long time ago, before everybody else, probably. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it's fantastic. Long, long may they, they carry on improving. Joe, where do Italy go from here, do you reckon? I mean, I feel like every time a new Italy coach comes in, I think it was highlighted at the weekend, is that we always end up talking about there's a three, four-year cycle. And the thing is... <laughs> A three, four year cycle is a long time and it's a long time to get a lot of things wrong before things go right. Um, ultimately, I think what Italy have to do is just try and focus on getting consistent selection. It's the same thing we've had with this France conversation for literally probably the last seven years, maybe even 10 years since they last won the Six Nations. Um, if they get consistent selection, if they kind of sort out what their team is, they try and work out a better way of getting players into professional rugby because we're not seeing a lot of the players that we're seeing are often there on residency grounds or it's like the classic you know you know the grandfather the grandmother is, is from that country um the thing is uh, it's not like we don't actually often see good signs from them and then at the weekend you know we've got to look at a team that's got i think a 19 year old a 20 year old playing fly half the, the first ever player to be born in the 2000s to have represented uh, a team in the six nations but he's obviously a promising player and they they are they have got the cogs there it just uh, i don't know i think this this maybe the sort of nations cup's a good opportunity for them to kind of to prove that they should be there if they beat a georgia for example quite convincingly if they beat fiji who maybe you'd be like a bit 50 50 on but i think there's there's stuff there to work with it's just uh, i think the mindset maybe needs to change from in four years it's all going to be different and we're going to get into a quarter final of the world cup Elizabeth, I'm going to bring you in now on the uh, women's uh, Six Nations. Um, yes. A, a mm -hmm. brilliant achievement from the girls. Fantastic, yeah. Women's Six Nations, five out of five, comprehensively beat everybody, which is a fantastic performance. Mm -hmm. How good are this squad, do you reckon? Oh, they were, they're class, I think. They've got a really good mixture of youth and um, also the older older players as well. And um, I thought they were brilliant um, at the weekend. They put in such a dominant performance. Um, you know, scoring the bonus point um, by half time was just fantastic. The men didn't even manage that um, against the Italians. Um, and I think Italy had so many opportunities, but they just made too many errors in English. England, uh, the England team punished them for this. Um, Sarah Beckett had a great game. Uh, Daly McLean was also um, classed and she just bulldozed her way, you know, through the defence. And also, you know, that transition from um, sevens to fifteens, you know, Ellie Kildun was absolutely fantastic. And you wouldn't have known that she'd played sevens not long ago before she then broke into the fifteens. And um, yeah, I think it's really exciting for them. And um, I think they're going to do really well in next year's World Cup. Nick, you've dealt with a lot of, uh, you know, Harlequins uh, women 
that really successful club, which is still successful even now, actually, uh, leading the, the Premier 15 yet again, understandably so. Um, going back to England women in particular, do you feel it helps that virtually they're all professional now, as opposed to, you know, these other sides? To be fair, a lot of these women, uh, you know, they're not professional. Um, do you feel that makes a massive difference overall? I will err on the side of caution when using the word professional, unfortunately, when it comes to <laughs> women's rugby. I still think there's a, there's a long way to go to have that fully professional setup. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, there is, you know, it is being introduced and it's great to see the, the pathway that the, the England girls being put on. Um, obviously, personally, I'm, I'm delighted there were seven, seven women's players in that, that Grand Slam win, winning squad for England and you, the likes of Shauna Brown. She's now got her own BBC Sport column and she's really developing. She's been signed by Umbro. Like those players, there's so much potential. Um, and I've always said it, they are that sort of inspiring story that our sport needs at the moment. Um, you know, you look at the unfortunate state of the men's game and everything and Premiership Rugby, Saracens, all of that drama. The women's game's pretty, pretty solid and you've got these outstanding performances. Yes, there is this huge divide at club level and international level where England and Harlequins and Saracens, they're dominating and then the rest of the sides, they are a bit further behind, which is why I really want to wear on the side of caution when using the word professional um, because some clubs are a lot further ahead. So... It's an exciting time for the game, and I think this is really the the platform that they need to to go on it and grow it. And I really, really hope that that doesn't slip away. And the likes of the RFU and you know now Premier Fifteens has got a new sponsor and everything. This is the chance for for the game to grow. Mm. Here, here, very much so. Yeah, very much so, Dick. Now, going to talk now about. Uh... <laughs> The downside of rugby that we've had the last few weeks, um, the Barbarian players uh, breaking COVID rules. Um, I mean, that was bad enough. But then, of course, what made it even worse was the, the England uh, Barbell game was called off. Um, that is a massive loss of finances for the RFU in particular. We are talking a huge amount there. Um, Tony, I'm going to come to you uh, first of all. What's your take on that situation? Well, I suppose the worrying thing is you look at it and you think, would you have been in that group? And I'm thinking, oh, geez, going back a few years, I think I might have been in that group. Um, uh, look, it, it clearly wasn't good. And, you know, there were some poor decisions made by some very, very good people, you know. And, you know, I spent a lot of time with Chris Robshaw and also people like Richard Wigglesworth, you know, who, who are very understanding of what, what the game's about. I think they made just a bad error of judgment, you know. I certainly wouldn't want the book to be thrown at them, you know, in terms of where things are. But, you know, I think everyone in this current climate has to understand the ramifications of people's behaviour. And, you know, I think they will be understanding it now if they didn't understand it before. And, you know, that's that, 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 that's that's what it is. I, I, you know, I'm, I've seen some great stuff on, um, on social media and you, you look at it and you think, well, actually, do they really know some of the people who are involved? And, you know, those people will realise that they've not got it right on this occasion. Um, and, it, and it has cost, you know, both, you know, not just the players and the, you know, and the RFU, but, you know, I know there was a lot of, a lot of people who will work. My, my wife works in the sports events business, so she's fully up aware with how that works. And there's a lot of people who would have been going into work at that game who financially are worse off than they would have been because they didn't have any work. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, that's the things that have been brought home. I think 
well, we're in this situation that we are, everyone's got to buy into it. And unfortunately, a group didn't quite buy into it. And it, and it just, you know, from a rugby point of view, it's clearly not a great look on the papers. It's not a great look for the game, um, you know, for the Barbarians, you know, a very famous club. Um, it's not a great look for them either in a, in a time where, you know, they're trying to find their place in a professional game. I guess I suppose if it sort of dampens it a little bit, so to speak, or, uh, you know, Chris Robshaw did come out straight away, didn't he, and apologised, and he, he said it was wrong, uh, which, you know, fair enough. I mean, he stood up. Uh, he was honest about it, wasn't he? He could have turned around and lied, so to speak. But the yeah. problem, I think, nowadays, uh, John, I'm going to come on to you on this. Uh, players now are scrutinised on social media. They're filled with, you know, fans are probably in a pub filming something like that. All of a sudden, it goes on social media, doesn't it? And then within 30 seconds or whatever, everybody around the world knows about this more than anything. And I guess also the other problem is, you know, I'm going to use a different sport now, cricket in particular. You know, the cricketers, the England cricketers have been in a bubble for virtually three months or so. Yes, one player, Joffrey Archer, did uh, do wrong. But the rest of them, to be fair have behaved themselves so I mean you know that's always going to get thrown at players aren't it isn't it in particular it is um and in the age of social media there is a, a greater amount of comeback um and that that happens for absolutely everybody nowadays I I wrote on social media I I think they were spectacularly naive um and and that from players of of the level and experience of the a number of players of the level of experience within that group, I think is it's not unforgivable. It's just why, why on earth would you do that? And you can understand taking a step back, why there were so many people who were going, Oh, well, they thought of themselves above the law. And, and I don't think any of those players, I, I don't know them as well as Tony, but I do, I've had encounters with several of them. I don't think that that will have been a thought at all, but I do think that they've been really naive. And I also think that there should be some management that should take some responsibility here because they should have surely have seen that they were going out as a big group and just gone, guys, you can't do that. I, it's not going to be a normal Barbarians game. Well, they should have had a meeting at the beginning and say, this isn't a normal Barbarians game. We aren't going to have the normal socialising. You're not going to be able to go out in bigger groups. So I just, I, I can't, I can't quite comprehend how it happened. The fact that it did happen, I don't think there is... It's, it has cost a lot of people money. It's, co it's made rugby look bad. It's it, it, not, very, not very much good comes out of it. Um, let, let's put it like that. But I also think that too often we get wound up and people because they now feel involved in um, elite sportsmen's lives get involved in a point to do you know what these are just young men or young women and young men and young women like to socialize like any young men and young women and they should be allowed to do so and they should be allowed to do so without being under scrutiny the entire time unfortunately that doesn't seem to be the case anymore but they sh I, I still think that there should be an element that is allowed to continue in that way so it's I find it a very tricky one to, I, I'm not going to come down hard on either way or one way or the other, but I do still stick by the fact that I think it was naive. And I think that there should be someone a little further up in the management who should take some responsibility here because unfortunately considering 
the the revenue that has been lost by the RFU, there there needs there does need to be some responsibility taken, and I, I don't think that a an, an an apology issued on social media is probably going to wash it. But we'll see. Joe, what's your take? Well, I mean, my take was that I, I was you know I was going to the game, and obviously for me, obviously as much as I'm attached to talking about union the way I am, I, I'm also freelance. So for me, it's kind of a Getting to go to games is an extra privilege, um, and in the in the lead up to that game, I was basically told no in certain terms. That would be my only England game of the autumn. So for me, going into that personally, it was quite disappointing because it was like that's the last game of the year, pretty much. Because obviously, everything that's happened now, am I likely to go to games up until the new year? Probably not. So, on a personal level, disappointed. Uh, when you look at it from the outside looking in, the RFU has made very clear. The financial implications the lockdown have had they've had to release community coaches they've had to release this that and the other and they were probably thinking million pound you know that they've lost that you know they were probably thinking oh we're going to make a million quid here lovely keeps us a bit of stability for things going forward and ultimately because of the actions of 13 people and i'm i'm, I'm you know i'm thinking about what everyone else has said and i'm thinking if i was 22 and chris robshaw and richard wigglesworth saying to me do you want to go for a pint would i probably say no uh, i don't know it's, it's a funny one that but you'd like to think that <laughs> even if you're there for a week you know you've been told you've been told you're there for a week all you can do is go be in this hotel or you can go to the coffee shop down the street which is what I understand they were told and you know for, the, for them not to have done it I think, I think it's just one of those I think sometimes a pack mentality comes into it and maybe you think oh let's go for a few beers it's the barbarians week but um, they're just like it's just one of them like I think everyone makes these mistakes I think everyone you know we've all probably done something during lockdown or whatever then we've gone Probably shouldn't have done that, but ultimately, you know, you've done it, and that's what's going to change now. Nothing really. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just a funny one. It's just, I think it was just a disappointing thing and just a bad look on the game as a whole. It's, um, yeah, it was a sad way to kind of start start the international period, if anything, really more than anything. Nick, I'll leave the last yeah. word to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously, look. Uh, I'm, I'm going to focus on on Chris Robshaw, Robbo um, yeah. here because there's the Harlequins connection, and I've I've known Robbo for the last year, and and I've you know he is such a leader. He is an inspiration to the game. You know, there's a reason he was the you know the England captain and the Quinns captain, and I I've won. I'm devastated for him because he's made a stupid stupid mistake and he's put his hands up um, uh, as of the other guys. But that was his farewell before he heads off to the states. And what a legacy he's 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 made you know in in the game over here. And I really hope that he has an incredible time stateside with with Camilla, his wife, and he really enjoys that experience. I the only thing I really want to say, and I'm quite passionate about this, is. And I think I saw Joe Marla tweeting about it. We need to be kind. They, they've made a mistake, right? But we need, like, the world needs to be kind. There's so much going on. The abuse that I saw Robert getting on social media was disgusting. Um, he, he made a mistake and absolutely needs to, be, needs to fess up to that. But some of the stuff that was being said was disgusting. Um, so, yeah, I've, I, I was going to say I feel for him because he's made a mistake. It, it's really hard. But, um, yeah, such a shame and such a shame for the Barbars as well because that's a, a classic game. Right, finally, we've got a few minutes left. So very, very quickly, I mentioned about the uh, Six Nations players uh, of the Championship. CJ Sander, Antoine Dupont, uh, Romain and Tomek, Gregory Aldright, and we mustn't forget Mario Toji, and Ben Youngs. Very, very quickly, uh, I'm going to go around the table. Who would you vote for? I'll start off with Tony. 
I played against his dad, so I'll say Ontemac. Uh, <laughs> I, I thought I thought he's brought a different dimension to France at fly half. I, I got a lot of time for Dupont, and you know I, I think his skills shown were shown in in a, in a massive light. And with those two halfbacks, they've got they're going to go a long way, France. Um, but I'll say Ontemac for his performances throughout the Six Nations. Okay, Nick. Nick, your vote? I am going to go with probably everyone. Everyone's favourite, probably. Uh, Antoine Dupont. Uh, I just can't see past him personally. I think he's been outstanding throughout the tournament. Um, what a player. Just a quick quick little story. I, I was working on a piece ahead of the World Cup with Danny Kerr um, on players to watch. And he was the one that he he pointed out even before the World Cup. And uh, he was completely spot on. Like, what a player Dupont has become. You know, almost as good as Danny Kerr, right? <laughs> uh, Joe, your, your vote. Oh, it's got to be Dupont, hasn't it? Never seen a nine run a team like that before, and yeah, definitely the player of the tournament for me. Jono, I'm just just to be different. I'm going to say Aldrit because, I, but <laughs> interestingly, um, I've heard that there's never been a Frenchman to win the player of the tournament since the inception of the Six Nations. So um, we haven't said someone from another nation yet. There are three <laughs> Frenchmen in this squad. I think Debbie said right at the beginning, the second t- the team that finished second was the best team in the tournament. I think they were dominant. But I do think, I mean, you could pick any one of those three. Uh, Elizabeth, Marcus. who would your vote? Um, yeah, DuPont as well. Um, so dominant throughout the tournament. Um, World class, you know. Um, Brilliant in defence and attack. I just think he's a really well-rounded player. And um, I think France going forward, a really exciting team with him in it. And Debbie, I know he's going to pick a French person. (laughs) Go on then, hit me with it. It's Dupont for me. I ought to be. I I think Mauro has to run a close second. Mauro Itoji, I think he had a fantastic tournament and he's showing his leadership again, which is going to be interesting at Lions time. But Dupont for me too. Well... I won't say I'm going to have the casting vote because I wouldn't have a casting vote because I think we all agree it's Dupont. But if I would have voted for somebody, I'm afraid I'm going to go on the Dupont uh, uh, fan club stable as well, actually, because I, I think he was outstanding. An absolute joy to watch uh, through every match, it has to be said. And going back to Nick's point, you know, Danny Kerr was right. He was spot on, you know, as he, as he normally is, actually. So well done, Danny, as well player to watch out for thank you so much everybody we want we've virtually run out of time uh thank you to uh, debbie knight joe harvey elizabeth cartwright uh, nick rucastle tony Deprose, and jonathan harris bass i've been none of those i've been peter moore thank you very much for listening and uh, joining in for the big kickoff uh, rugby podcast we will return in a couple of weeks' time when we'll be discussing uh, the Autumn Internationals and the uh, Champions Cup as well. And if anyone's worked that out yet, congratulations to you all. Thanks very much.